Welcome to the Washington University Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast, December 2013. All right, guys, welcome to the podcast. This month, we're going to do things a little bit differently. I'm joined remotely by Dr. Brian Heaston, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Wake Forest Baptist Health. Brian, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, sir. Brian was one of the authors on an article that recently came out in Academic Emergency Medicine entitled, The Diagnosis of Acute Mesenteric Ischemia, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. I thought this was a great article and thought it was worth talking about this month. Basically, they did a systematic review looking at articles related to the diagnosis of acute mesenteric ischemia. Now, first, Brian, can you explain the difference for our listeners between mesenteric ischemia and ischemic colitis? Because I think this is still one of those things that a lot of people get confused about. It, certainly. Uh, and uh, ischemic colitis is predominantly a disease of the l- large colon, whereas mesenteric ischemia, as it would be implied, is a disease of mesenteric vessels. I came across a nice turn of phrase out of Tenton Alley's. An ischemic disease of the large colon has as little in common with mesenteric ischemia as aortic dissection does with AAA. These, although they both affect the same organ system, are two distinct clinical entities. Whereas with mesenteric ischemia, you will find a thrombotic or embolic source of occlusion when you do angiography. Not so with ischemic colitis. Ischemic colitis is usually going to be due to a low flow state. It can be patchy, it can be widespread, and it's usually transient. I will say that about 10% of patients with ischemic colitis do go on to have full thickness infarction, which can lead to necrosis, gangrene, and overall poor outcomes. But in general, from the disease process itself, uh, ischemic colitis is less pathophysiologically intense than mesenteric ischemia. Okay, yeah, and ischemic colitis, uh, the treatment is really supportive care, whereas with mesenteric ischemia, it's uh, hot lights and cold steel, as our surgeons like to say. Reperfusion, reperfusion, reperfusion. Absolutely. So you guys looked at a lot of different studies looking at the diagnostic accuracy of different history and physical exam findings. Now, when I was in med school, I think we all learned that patients with mesenteric ischemia have this pain that's out of proportion to their physical exam findings. They've got guaiac positive stool, and they've all got elevated lactates. You guys found actually sensitivities for pain out of proportion ranging between 45 and 54 percent, and sensitivities for guaiac positive stool of only 5.9 to 23 percent. So pretty low sensitivity. So a lot of patients with mesenteric ischemia who will in fact not have pain out of proportion or guaiac positive stool. And then for lactate, you guys found studies looking at two different kinds of lactate, D-lactate and L-lactate. Can you tell us the difference between D-lactate and L-lactate and the implications for the practitioner? Certainly. D-lactate, while it is clinically available, is generally not used in the emergency department setting. It's a marker of bacterial metabolism, and if you're going to have it available to you, you're probably going to have it available as a send-out test that will come back sometime after the autopsy. L-lactate is what we typically think of for the shock hypoperfusion biomarker, what we have available to us on our blood gas analyzers when you're you're treating somebody for sepsis. That's going to be the L-lactate isomer that we're looking at. 
We included the D-lactate studies because they are out there in the evidence base in the discussion of mesenteric ischemia and more of kind of a red flag as to pay attention uh, to the study that you're reading because not all lactates are created equal. Yeah, we looked at this back a few months ago when we talked about septic arthritis, and there are some studies looking at D-lactate and some studies looking at L-lactate. We found that we don't actually have this study, the D-lactate, at our institution. It's a send-out lab to the Mayo Clinic and takes about three days to come back. Unfortunately, if you are using that to try and diagnose mesenteric ischemia, by the time the test comes back, you'll know if they had it or not. They'll be alive still or they'll be dead. All right, so for D-lactate, you guys found sensitivity about 90% for pooled sensitivity, specificity of 40%. For L-lactate, more importantly, the sensitivity was 86%, specificity 44%, so a negative likelihood ratio of 0.2, positive likelihood ratio of 1.67. So not as sensitive as we really would have liked it to be, given that we're all ordering these on most of our mesenteric ischemia patients. Correct. Now, D-dimer, on the other hand, you guys also found studies looking at, and that had a sensitivity of 96% with a specificity of 40% and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.12. Now, given this higher sensitivity of D-dimer for mesenteric ischemia, do you think we can safely exclude ischemia in patients with low pretest probability of disease who have a negative D-dimer? So the use of D-dimer is conceptually attractive. I mean, we're looking at a thrombotic or thromboembolic disease state with uh, the coagulation cascade being activated. It makes sense that D-dimer would be elevated in these patients. And we did, as you state, find a likelihood ratio negative that was pretty low. Generally, a LR negative of 0.1 is considered to be an acceptable rule out of a disease condition. Oh, we approach that at 0.12, that's almost a rounding error. But if you take a look at the table, you see that the confidence interval for uh, the LR negative of D-dimer topped out at 0.3. So the evidence base that we analyzed was consistent with an LR uh, negative ratio that was higher than we'd be comfortable advocating as a complete rule-out test. I would like to see a prospective study looking at D-dimer and its effect on decision-making, test ordering, and patient outcomes before I would be comfortable stating that you could use D-dimer to say, beyond this point, no further testing is required. Okay, that sounds reasonable. So are you ordering lactates now, D-dimers, or both, or neither? So I do not use D-dimer clinically for uh, my abdominal pain patients, neither for suspected aortic dissection nor mesenteric ischemia. Of course, the use of D-dimer in VTE disease has been thoroughly studied and validated, and of course, we use it for that. I don't think D-dimer is ready for prime time for mesenteric ischemia. As for lactate, I still use it, and I use it uh, fairly extensively but more in its role of evaluating global hyperperfusion and shock as opposed to a specific rule-out of mesenteric ischemia. The problem with laboratory screening for a single disease entity is that, great, you have a negative lab test that might tell you, okay, we're done with looking at mesenteric ischemia. But if you look at the population that we're evaluating here, these are typically older individuals with substantial abdominal pain. The list of potential landmines on that differential diagnosis is large. And so these patients, even if you can say, okay, great, no mesenteric ischemia, they still may have acute cholecystitis. They may still have other uh, diseases that, of high morbidity and mortality that need to be evaluated. 
the use of imaging in this particular patient population is very advantageous because it's like what, what happened with VQ scanning when CT pulmonary uh, angiograms came along. VQ was reasonably decent at picking up a single disease entity, pulmonary embolism. Wouldn't tell you aortic dissection, wouldn't tell you small pneumonias, wouldn't tell you other disease states that could be symptomatic causing, what you're, uh, causing the symptoms that you're trying to evaluate. Likewise, uh, a single lab test or even a combination of lab tests might be okay at telling you what it's not, but it will not identify what it is. And the CT scanning will give you an idea of what is actually going on with the patient. Okay, so CT, and even if it's negative for mesenteric ischemia, it might tell you what is going on with the patient. Correct. All right, great. Great segue into the CT scan. When I was in residency, which wasn't that long ago, but was a few years ago, we were told by our radiologists that CT scans were inappropriate for the workup of patients with suspected mesenteric ischemia. Basically, they laughed at us, said you got to call surgery and they've got to get a formal angiogram. But obviously, there's been a lot of technology that's been updated over these years. We now have these multi-detector and multi-row CT scanners. So you guys looked at the studies looking at CT scan and mesenteric ischemia and found a pooled sensitivity of 94%, specificity of 95%, a positive LR of 17.5, and a negative LR of 0.09, so below that 0.1 threshold you talked about earlier. Now, there were a wide range of sensitivities for CT scan reported in these different studies, 83% all the way up to 100%. Tell me, Brian, did you notice any difference between studies that used older versus newer generation scanners with less or more rows? Not particularly. If you're reading the article and you go to the online supplements, you'll note that we do have forest plots for the sensitivity and specificity of the CT scanning. And those graphically are arranged in chronologic order, and there's not a particular pattern to the uh, sensitivity point estimates for CT scanning. The scanners were all multi-sliced. They ranged from four slice scanners all the way up to 64 slice scanners. The 64 slice were, was, of course, um, the, in the later years. But there was no particular difference in the sensitivity range uh, on the number of slice scanners that we were looking at. All right, so no real difference in the sensitivities based solely on the newer and older generation scanners and the number of rows. Did any of the studies assess CT scans as interpreted by radiologists who were blinded to the final diagnosis? So one of the studies did utilize a uh, second-look, blinded, retrospective uh, evaluation of the CT scan. They used that more, though, to assess inter-rater reliability of the features of the CT scan as opposed to the actual clinical diagnosis of mesenteric ischemia or not. We as emergency physicians are fairly dichotomous in our approach. Um, admit, discharge, live, die, has the disease, does not have the disease. The radiology approach in this literature was oftentimes a little bit more nuanced, although they did char eventually characterize the CT scan as consistent with mesenteric ischemia or not consistent with mesenteric ischemia. A lot of times in a lot of these articles, they were more interested in the various components of the CT scan. The presence of pneumatosis, the presence of bowel wall ischemia, and how well those particular components, uh, radiologists might agree with each other on that, and how that came up to the final diagnosis of mesenteric ischemia or not. For the most part, uh, nearly all the studies utilized the clinical read of the radiologist at the time of care.
Okay, so actually real-time reads on the studies were used for most of these research studies. Is that correct? That is correct. That increases the external validity of the findings here because having an abdominal CT scan super subspecialist evaluating CT scans retrospectively and Monday morning quarterbacking is less helpful and less representative of the real-world environment. Okay, absolutely. So for those studies that didn't use blinded radiologists, uh, can you explain how this would affect the perceived diagnostic accuracy that they reported? Certainly. And this is referred to as incorporation bias. When the diagnostic study that you're looking at has an impact on whether or not the patient goes on to having the reference standard diagnosis made. The patients who went to the operating room for suspected mesenteric ischemia, well, the, the surgeons had the information on the CT scan read in their hand when they were making the decision to go to the operating room. So that is somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy such that you'd be more likely to find acute mesenteric ischemia in somebody whose CAT scan was read as acute mesenteric ischemia and therefore the CAT scan would look like a diagnostic genius more often than not. That is a problem in less clinically severe entities. One thing with mesenteric ischemia, its mortality approaches 100% when untreated. So you're probably not going to have a whole lot of false negative scans on patients that were discharged out of the hospital alive. If you made it out the door, odds are pretty good you didn't have untreated acute mesenteric ischemia. Okay, so not a lot of false negatives then. People who left the hospital, went home, turns out they had mesenteric ischemia and nobody knew about it. If they did, they were probably going to die. Correct. All right, Brian, anything else you want to tell us from this paper or anything else that you want to tell us about mesenteric ischemia in general? Well, one of the problems with the literature base for this has to deal with the fact that mesenteric ischemia is fortunately a pretty rare disease. It's got an intense interest because it is a very mortal condition, but it doesn't happen all that often, which is great for the patient population in general, but lousy if you want to be a researcher studying the condition. The easy way and I say easy uh, on a relative basis, to study this is to do retrospective case reviews where you gather all the diagnoses of mesenteric ischemia your hospital saw, or even using the massive databases now available with NISQIP, and then going back and looking at the conditions that were present. Unfortunately, that's only one half of a case control study. With the history physical uh, exam findings, we weren't able to really look at the specificity of any of this and therefore come up with any metrics that would help the clinician come up with a uh, pretest probability of disease just from history and physical. We had the prevalence of pain, we had the prevalence of fever, we had the prevalence of tachycardia, but we didn't have the prevalence of those conditions in patients who had pain but did not have mesenteric ischemia. These were pretty much retrospective case series of patients that had the disease for the history and the physical exam findings, which was unfortunate because I am still a big believer in it that the best diagnostics are the ones where you actually talk to the patient and examine the patient. We simply didn't have the evidence base to really reliably provide any sensitivity or specificity of those qualities of examining the patient. All right, so without patients with physical exam findings but without the disease, can't get specificities and can't get likelihood ratios, right? Correct. You only have one half of the two-by-two two table. Right. 
Well, Brian, this was a great review. Thanks for writing the paper, and thanks for joining us here on the podcast. I think everybody out there is going to learn a lot about mesenteric ischemia and how it's diagnosed. Great. Well, thank you very much, sir. Well, thanks again to Brian Heaston for joining me, and thanks to all of you out there for listening. Don't forget to check out the webpage, emjclub.com, and follow us on Twitter. We're at emjclub. Hope to see you back next time.